Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 432 of the podcast. It's November 17th, 2021. We're going to be taking two weeks off uh, for Thanksgiving, but we'll be back in December with uh, a few more episodes before the end of the year. Uh, Today, our guest is our good friend, Jamie Flinchbaugh. We're going to be talking about his new book, People Solve Problems. So um, if you want to learn more about that, get a link to buy the book and more. You can go to leanblog.org slash 432. Thanks for listening. Well, again, welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Jamie Flinchbaugh. He's no stranger to this podcast or uh, likely not a stranger to you. The listener, um, he's been a guest before, if the Google was accurate, episodes 5, 6, 10, 64, and then 261. And I, I don't have a good reason for that, those gaps there, Jamie, but welcome back. No, well, thank you for, for having me back. Um, uh, the gaps are largely as much that I didn't have anything interesting to say uh, in between there, but uh, I was glad to be a uh, an early contributor and um, an ongoing occasional guest. Well, and, and by contributor, Jamie was uh, writing for uh, Lean Blog, and then he eventually um, you know he has his own website today. You can find that at jflinch.com. Um, twice Jamie interviewed me, uh, episode 50. Like, remember, that was that was a milestone. That was a big milestone <laughs> a long, long ago. And now we're uh, almost, we're, we'll do episode 500 together. That's still a little ways away, but how's That's that? That's a ways away. You, you got plenty, plenty of other interesting folks to interview between now and then. Yeah. And then Jamie also interviewed me in episode 316 about uh, my book, Measures of Success. And then starting in 2019, we uh, we started a podcast together called Lean Whiskey. And we just released our 30th episode. I think all but maybe five, I think there were five episodes where I had somebody else as a guest co-host. Yeah, we didn't do all of them together. But, uh, but you know, this wasn't a pandemic project as as some podcasts have been this was an idea that had been cooking for a while and and uh we've we've enjoyed uh a very open format of lean whiskey and and uh today i'm just drinking tea because you know this is a different this is a different <laughs> podcast yeah um i have i've got a bottle of water and um that that's coffee that's convincingly coffee looking at <laughs> yes, that in the video right <laughs> It's not Irished up or anything. So, you know, in the Lean Whiskey podcast series, Jamie and I do talk about whiskey a little bit, but mostly it's lean talk. And today it's going to be um, completely around Jamie's new book. Um, congratulations on getting that written and published. Um, it's called People Solve Problems, The Power of Every Person, Every Day, Every Problem. So it's available in uh, paperback and Kindle, and it's also an audiobook, right? Yes, audiobook uh, uh, is released as well, so uh, you can pretty much get it um, any format you like. So I hope people will check that out, and you know that's going to be the theme of our um, discussion here today. So you know, for, first question, I don't mean this to be like you know too flippant, but when you, when you, when you title the book, people solve problems, we're not worried about AI 
replacing people when it comes to problem solving? No, no, I don't think I don't think we are. I think, uh, in, in fact, AI and and machine learning and big 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 data these are these are tools that we use to help analyze or standardize certain decisions. But um, without getting you know too far ahead of ourselves, I, I even write about intuition in the in the book and how that integrates. And those are those are things that machine learning can't do. And I I think. The, the key is if if we knew all the solutions to the known problems, then we would we would just write the software. But we we don't. We have to stumble and find our way through developing and implementing solutions, and and that's why you know this this is such a people centric activity. And that's one of the the downsides of um, you know, automating people out of a job. The automation, whether it's you know physical automation or software automation can't contribute to the organization when it comes to problem solving and bettering the company. No, that's that's right. I think they can help standardize and 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 provide leverage in a lot of ways. By no means am I am I anti-software, but mm-hmm. you know, the the key is, you know, somebody still has to understand cause and effect. And whether it's about something that went wrong or it's about something that could go better, whichever type of gap you're talking about, someone has to decide that there's a gap. Someone mm-hmm. has to uh, find a way through and, and understand cause and effect so that, so that you can find a better path through. And, and that includes as we develop software, you, know, you can't treat that as a black box. You've mm-hmm. got to understand how we get the result that we get, even if a machine is doing that, doing that work for you. And you know, for those who are watching the video, you might notice you know I'm, I'm wearing a Kinexus logo shirt today, and and it's one other tidbit of, about uh, Jamie's background. He has been an advisor to the company. He's uh, been an investor in the company and a friend of the company. But you know, Kinexus has never pitched or promised or even dreamed that web-based software would be in some way automating problem solving that you know we're in agreement there there is a role for people using software to, to help track their improvement activities for example yeah yeah and and just a little you know a little backstory to help illuminate that point is that you know people need people need help too right they mm-hmm. they need a good system underneath them whether it's pen and paper or it's it's software to help help keep things organized, help track things, help connect them to each other, help uh, reference um, and, and, and sort and provide reminders and all those wonderful things. And, um, you know, I, I saw plenty of organizations over the years that would do a really great job with putting problem solving up on a wall and walking the wall. And, and that's, that's great if that works for you. Um, but I, I've also worked with organizations that are 10,000 people spread out over an equally broad number of locations, and, and there's no wall to walk. So, so software provides that, uh, that job aid to help make those things a little bit easier. And, and I actually had identified that as a, as a possibility, and on my old business, I, I I put developing such software on my own strategic plan. And after a couple of years of not getting around to it, that's when I discovered Kinexus and decided, well, you know, I develop, uh, I, I just wanted the problem improved. Uh, I didn't need to do it all myself. So when I found Kinexus, I, I stopped trying to de- build my own <laughs> software and just 
uh, just got behind Connexus. Yeah. Well, and thank you for for doing that and for your support. But you know, uh, you know, as as you as you say, as the book title says, people solve problems. You know, I think of Kinexus in a way. There's a parallel in healthcare. You have an electronic medical record system. Now, IBM and Watson has made noise for a decade or longer about AI diagnosis or what have you. I I don't know how that's panned out. It still seems like more promise than anything, but. Having a, a, a system of record to keep things organized and to allow for communication and collaboration and tallying up the way people might tally up data within an electronic medical record, you know, I think you know there's still use. There's something useful there that interface between you know people and technology that's supporting them, not replacing or automating their thoughts. Really. Yeah, and, and and you know, there's there's opportunities to use diagnostic tools and AI to help reduce noise and and variation and provide some some job aids to help the judgment along uh, to say, hey, did you did you mean to look at this or would you consider that or did you forget this step? And there's a lot of great things you can do to help reduce that variation and make us less dependent on having a bad day or being tired or just rushing through a task. Um, but again, those, those critical moments of judgment, insight, intuition, creativity, those are things that, that still humans are, are absolutely best suited for. And a you know, final point I'll make for moving on you know, back to the book, but you know, I mean, there are certain things that software can more rigorously track and follow up on. For example, if somebody has said, I'm going to complete a certain task or assignment by a certain date, that can be automated, that reminder or something that flags the human to intervene and whether you know, that's a manager or an improvement coach to, to jump in and, and try to help. But that's, that's pretty minimal when it comes to automating things. Yeah, and, and this is where you know our our brains when when we have the the a lot of the things taken care of with routine with standards with automation you know uh, our brains can be free to to do those other things like I, I like to argue if you if you had to rethink the process for brushing your teeth every day like well then that that couldn't be your aha moment when you start thinking about a problem at work. Uh, and let your brain run free with it because your brain is busy just trying to get through the task. So, yeah, we 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 do want to standardize things, automate them, make them a lot easier so that we we can use the human brain for for tasks that it's best suited for. Yeah. So, quick quick aside, I was thinking the other day. I think the biggest time saving technology for me is Google Maps or GPS software. Of think of how much time you used to invest into researching, <laughs> getting from point A to point B in advance, and God forbid something goes wrong or changes with your route along the way. I mean, th- those are hours that can be redeployed to something more enjoyable or more productive. Oh, and I, and I used to go on trips and you know have three to four weeks a month, and and I'd map out you know and print the the map instructions for. Okay, airport to hotel, hotel to client, client to dinner, dinner back to hotel, you know, <laughs> and every every little segment I, I was going to be on was its own little set of maps. And uh, what a what a wasteful task that that has yeah. proven to now be. Um, yeah. But but was necessary at the time. Yeah. I had a, a 2004 model year car 
that I got rid of in 2015. And in the back seat pocket, I found a printed out Yahoo map from like 2005. (laughs) Car was a little time machine. Yeah, well, right on top of it is laying an old Garmin that was uh, was discarded (laughs) a few years later, probably. Yeah. yeah. All right. So anyway, so back to the book, People Solve Problems. Um, It had been how many years between the Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean that you you co-authored with Andy Carlino and and this book, People Solve Problems. Yeah, that came out December of 05. Um, I keep keep wanting to shorten that duration, but uh, December of 05, although so late in December that it's really a 06 book. But, um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 been been a long time. I, in my head, it was 10 years, but but clearly that was off by a significant factor. Yeah. And, 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 you, you know, and, and that's not criticism. I was just curious of 15 years. And, and I'm sure along the way, there are many books you could write next. You're thinking of in terms of topics or themes or structure. And so out of all of that and considering, you know, all the things that you're doing and you're busy, like what, what was the spark then that said, okay, this idea now I'm going to sit down and, and move forward with it. Well, I think there's a couple of factors. One, is that uh, I had always said, really, for the longest time, when, when lean was commonly referred to as a waste elimination method, I, I, I pushed back pretty hard on the, the lean community as a whole, just saying, I said, waste is just a, a type of problem, and, and it's not all about waste elimination. It's more about problem solving. And, and so that, that was a position I've held for a long, long time. Um, not that it's only about problem solving, just more about problem solving. And then, you know, on top of that, as I uh, essentially sort of started a new advisory and coaching firm beginning of 2020, you know, I've wanted to write a book for a while. Uh, again, um, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide had continues to do well still. And so for some reasons, it was like, well, I don't really you know, feel like I need to write another book. But problem solving, you know, I had no tools. I didn't, wasn't particularly uh, focused on teaching people. Leadership, their own tool set, their own leaders who design how they're going to do things. And, and so, uh, so, so those things work out uh, quite well, which means that I don't have to tell you what template to use. I don't have to tell you how to do these things. There's people inside that know how to do it, but they're still struggling. They're still struggling to make problem solving really come to life, to breathe, to to flourish in their organization. And so for years and culminating in writing this book, I've just been paying attention to what, what else is it, right? Why after tool, after tool, after tool for problem solving, do companies still struggle to make problem solving be you know, flourish in their in their organization? And that's that's what got me to start digging up, uh, digging into this topic in a much deeper way. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of depth and a lot to dig into um, with with the book. Um, so, you know, for, first question comes to mind: like, you know, early in the book, you talk about um, the idea of behaviors driving action. So like what, what are some of the key behaviors that can either drive uh, more problem-solving activity or maybe more importantly, better, more effective problem-solving? 
So I, and I can't remember if I start with this one, but it's perhaps my favorite. And that's, um, you know, the key of learning deliberately. Um, that problem solving is by definition, at least, at least my definition, a learning activity. If we already know the answer, then you don't have to problem solve. You just execute, right? Um, and, and even most of the time that we think we know the answer, we can just execute, right? If your computer's glitchy, uh, 19 out of 20 times, people just restart their computer, and and at least half the time, the problem you know solves itself. You don't even you don't even want to understand why. You just just you just accept the gift and move on. But problem solving is about understanding why, understanding what's going to work, understanding why the problem exists, why the gap really is, and so you have to approach it from a, a an orientation of learning. And so as a, as a observable side of this, I'll, I'll go to organizations and even if they do it digitally, you can still get the sense of, did they, did they solve this problem on the template A through Z in a linear fashion? You know, every step was filled out sequentially along the way with no backtracking, no backspacing, no deleting, no erasing. And, you know, every time I see that, you know, not in one problem, but in all of them, I can tell they're not treating it as a learning activity. They're treating it as a documentation activity because there's no way that we're right about each step linearly that often. Right? So a learning, a learning orientation problem solving means we circle back. It's not, it's not steps A through Z. We bounce around the alphabet <laughs> and we learn something. We go back a few steps. We learn something. We go back a step. And it's a much more circular process of discovery. And so that's just, just an, an observable indicator of when I think people are treating problem solving like a procedure instead of a discovery method. Um, and along with that, just to point out another behavior, uh, I think collaborate, uh, I just, you know, I want to say more about it, but I just use that one word around collaborate is, is an important behavior because you'll see, you'll, you'll convince an organization that they should be working across organizational boundaries in problem solving, but but then they start doing things like having pre-meetings, like, okay, let's have a pre-meeting, decide what we want to share with that group and what acceptable answers are we willing to uh, negotiate. And, you know, and that's, that's not collaboration. Collaboration is let's come to the table, join forces and figure out how to, how to close the gap. And so, again, setting the meeting and having another group in the, in the meeting to talk about the problem isn't collaboration. It's how we approach that conversation. That's the behavior that makes it work. So those are just a, a couple of examples that I, I find are, are, are really challenging for organizations to embrace. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think sometimes, um, I don't know if it's gray area or overlap between mindsets and behaviors that are driven out of the mindset. But la later in the book, uh, and you, you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to hear more from you. You talk about the idea of um, testing to learn, testing throughout the problem-solving process. Because the, the, the way I would state a behavior I think is helpful is shifting from knowing things to figuring things out and learning and testing. For example, oh, we know the root cause. The 
begs the follow-up question of, do you really? How do you know, or do you just have a suspected root cause? Those are some of the things that, that I think you can test. So I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate a little bit more on kind of building your chops around testing instead of knowing the importance of that. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, you actually use the, my favorite, one of my favorite questions as a coach is, is how do you know? Right. Doesn't, and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, most people think about this as the last step of problem solving, meaning you're going to validate that your solution works. Right. And, and, and absolutely do that. Right. I mean, test the solution to see if it produces the result you expect, but there's there's opportunities along the way where somebody writes a problem statement. Well, how do you know that's the gap? How do you know that standard is sufficient? How do you know that gap is what the customer experiences? Uh, here's what the root cause is. How do you know that's the root cause, right? Um, and in physical environments, these are easier things to test, right? If you're troubleshooting a uh, um, a circuit, you know, uh, an electrical system, right? There's a lot of ways to test whether your hypothesis is correct around the root cause, right? Um, oh, I think this is where the trip is. Well, we can isolate it, we can test it, and you can see if it's broken, broken leg or something over overcharged. It, much easier to do in a lot of those, a lot of those physical systems. And our processes not so easy, but still important because everything's a theory, right? Our problem statement, well, that's a theory. How do you know? Uh, our root cause, that's, that's, a, that's a theory. How do you know? Uh, here's our target state. This is what we think good looks like. Well, how do you know that too? And so you always want to be, uh, be testing. There's a, there's a phrase from the book called noise and they actually borrow it from another book, but I, 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 I'm not gonna recall the, 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 the backwards it, reference. Is, is this the, uh, the Daniel Kahneman book? Noise. This is the, the latest Daniel Kahneman yeah. book. Um, he, he kind of says, that, you know, thinking fast and slow was, you know, most of his life is research. And then everything that didn't make that book ended up in noise. So, um, <laughs> but they, they use the term perpetual beta. And this is more about forecasting specifically, but they, they talk about, you know, forecaster, best forecasters are in perpetual beta, which means Everything is held lightly. Everything's an assumption. Everything is subject to change. Everything is subject to challenge. And, and I think it's a great phrase and, and a lot of the spirit in which we, we do, we should engage in, in problem solving. The, I think the, the way this culminates really the, the best indicator of this behavior is not, not what happens when you get an answer uh, worse than what you expect. But what happens when you get an answer better than what you expect? Mm, mm -hmm. And are you still curious or do you, you know, move forward, right? So if you're, if you're, you know, trying a different idea and you expect to, to be able to shave 20 minutes off of a task and <clears throat> it turns out you saved, you know, 50 minutes, like, whoa, oh, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I better bank that, right? That's a put, put myself down for 50. I am smarter than I thought. Uh, and, and so that's a natural reaction, but the learner is like, well, wait a minute. What did I miss? Right. Why, why was it? Yeah. I'm still, gl I'm glad it's 50. I certainly am going to not throw the idea out because it gave me better results than I expected, but 
I'm, I'm a little concerned that I don't understand why things are the way they are. And that's the learner mentality that, that I think is a great place for it to show up and, and to test whether it's really there, because it's much easier just to bank the, bank the surprise game um, and walk away. Think about it. You know, a sales team and, and they, they they start writing off a customer, a prospect and like, yep, they're done. They're not going to buy. And then they turn around and buy. And you're like, oh, great. <laughs> I'm thrilled. But wait a minute. <laughs> we wrote them off and then they bought. What did we not understand? Um, and, and what are the consequences of that, that gap in knowledge? So th- this is there's no tool that forces you to do that. Right. There's no software to use the earlier point that forces you to do that. It's it requires that I don't say natural curiosity because it's not natural most of the time that that decision to operate in a uh, behavior of, of curiosity. And I think the curiosity is key. Um, I mean, one thing I've reflected on and talked to people about is sort of retraining ourselves to not feel ashamed over not knowing something, being wrong, making a mistake, and instead trying to be excited about the learning that comes from that. Like I, I had a guest recently on my favorite mistake, um, Cash Nickerson, who said it really well. He said, like, it takes humility to even entertain the idea that your idea could be a bad one. The mm-hmm. business that you start might not work out. The improvement idea that you have in the workplace doesn't get to the root cause of the problem. Like to to to, to even think of that as a possibility requires humility that's sometimes been for one reason or another drummed out of us. We're not willing to admit I tried something and it didn't work. Right. And, and I, you know, I like to re, uh, refer to myself as a recovering engineer. I've got you know, three engineering degrees and, and, and one of the things I'm trying to recover from is the idea that, you know, we should be right all the time. Um, but I, 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 I used to hold that belief before I was an engineer anyway. So it was a, more natural thing, but but this is this is a behavior that can be learned. Um, so so I, I've been an entrepreneur in the past. I, I I don't consider myself one right now because the business I have is I'm not setting up to scale. I, I'm not building a business. It's just just me doing doing what I do. Um, but but I would still and I'd go in and out of this this practice. But I would, for certain periods of time, I would force myself to come up with a new business idea every single month. And the idea was force myself, A, to be creative, right? Because that takes practice and, and think strategically and all the things. How do you, how would you put this business together? It doesn't make sense. What questions do I have? And that was always just good practice. But the other part was to be, to, to be able to look at my own ideas and say, that's awful. That's not going to work. That's bad. And throw it away and, and be okay with throwing it away, right? If you, if you, own, if you uh, fall in love with every idea, then you, the cycle of testing your idea can be very big and cumbersome. And so if you look at more ideas and say no to some of them or many of them, you, you, you realize that, A, not only is it okay to have uh, bad ideas or wrong ideas, it, it's, 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 it's natural and it actually makes you smarter about what the good ones are. Um, I, I uh, recently, just, just in the past couple of days, gave some advice to a client that was, 
has, has dramatically ramped up their problem solving. And so I was challenging them on what percentage of the ideas tested work. And, and so far it's been all of them. And it's like, are you really challenging yourself to stretch and be creative and do breakthroughs? Because that probably, probably suggests to me that you're not stretching yourself very far because they shouldn't all work, right? You're not, you're not trying very hard at, at breakthrough performance if, if every idea is such a slam dunk that it works yeah. each time. Yeah, but you talk about, you know, learning or unlearning and relearning, you know, these behaviors, you probably know of the exercise, I don't know if you've participated in it, where you're given a bunch of materials like uncooked spaghetti and marshmallows and whatever mm -hmm. else is in that. And you have to build the tallest structure that you can that doesn't collapse in a certain period of time. Have, have you ever, I think I've only oh, read about this. The, the marshmallow challenge, it's, it's, yeah. um, I facilitated it many times. I facilitated it for several hundred people once um, or, or a few times. And it's, it's a great exercise because, you know, teams come together and, you know, they, they, they want to be right. They have a time limit and, and, and they, they don't experiment. They don't test. They just design with an assumption and then they, and then they try to win. And, and it's interesting that, that, that a lot of, uh, you know, kindergartners do do better than than a lot of professional adults because they're more willing just to play, to play to with things. ideas, to be yeah. wrong, to try it out because they're not expected. Of course, who is expected to have the answer to how to put spaghetti and marshmallow and tape together? Right. That's not that, that's not that wasn't there was no class on that. Right. So even if you were an engineer or an architect. So of course you shouldn't have the answer. So go ahead and play. Uh, it's you're facing new territory, and most yeah. of the time we are. Yeah. Um. So going back to the, when you say you know you're, you're an entrepreneur, I mean I think that's probably in your nature. You 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 don't lose that. You might not have an active startup at the time, but I mean I I do think though to be fair to you, I think bringing a book to market is an entrepreneurial venture. It's not forming a company, but thinking of the book as a product, the book helps ideas scale in a way that might scale better than relying on just going and giving talks or speeches. Did you, did you think about the book as a startup in any way? A, a bit, a bit. Um, I was less concerned about, um, I'll say the profitability of the venture. Um, in part because I wasn't trying to employ people through it, right? That's always my, as an entrepreneur, that's always my, uh, my, my big focus is on not, it's not on how much money I make as the, as the founder or owner, but on all the people that depend on the business, uh, having a livelihood. And, and that's, you know, stressful, but also rewarding. Um, so I, you know, to me, it was less about the profitability of the venture, but it is, um, it is about testing the ideas. It is about providing access to ideas at a lower price point than engaging with me directly. Um, and this was what I, you know, with my old business, I always wanted to, I wanted to keep lowering the, the lowest entry point, right? So, oh, instead of a consulting engagement, could you just attend a class and how, how cheap can that be? And, and then it's like, well, write a book. Now you can test the ideas even, even cheaper, at least access them. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that will never call me. 
that will never engage me as a, as a coach or an advisor, whether they can't afford to or never think to or whatever, right? Just don't, you don't know how to find me. But if they can find some ideas in the book that are useful um, at a much lower price point than working with me directly, then fantastic. Um, and I think what's interesting is, you know, is the book its own business model, right? Or is it simply a product line under, under the current one? And it may not matter. Um, it, it may not matter um, because in, in, in a lot of regards, it's also, you know, what do I gain from the, the project uh, beyond, you know, I'll say the financial reward of selling the book. And I, I really feel like I have always sharpened my own thinking by writing. Um, it's one of the reasons I wrote a column for many years, why I, I started guest blogging for you long before I had my own blog. And just writing, I think, makes me smarter. And, and so that was, in, you know, going back to your earlier question, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I had a lot to say, but I didn't, I didn't have a lot to say well. And so writing the book kind of forces me to learn how to say these things well. At least better, maybe not well, but at least say them better. And um, and so, while I'm certainly glad to have published, um, if I decided not to publish, just had all this writing, it still would have been it would have been a big exercise for <laughs> just for myself, but it still would have been a worthwhile one. Yeah. Um. So the book, and again, the title is "People Solve Problems." It's not a book about, let's say, quote unquote, A3 problem solving. It's not a book about PDSA or Toyota Kata. And the book you, early on, especially you make this point of, I don't know if agnostic was the exact word you use, but but not really caring so much about what the exact framework is. Is that a fair way of kind of recapping that? Yeah, absolutely. It, I, I, I do say it's a tool agnostic book and, and the first of it, version of it was not because um, I, I, you know, I like A3 problem solving. I've got Art Smalley and, and Durwood Sobeck's uh, understanding A3 thinking right over my shoulder. Um, it was my favorite of the of the many good problem solving books. So that's my favorite. Um, some of the best problem solvers I've ever met use different tools. And so that, that's an acknowledgement. Um, the, the best problem solvers I see use some of the same tools that some of the worst problem solvers use. And so, you know, I, I really felt like tools matter without a doubt, but that's not, it's not the distinguishing factor in success. And so I, I wanted to make this, you know, not about lean, not just an extension on A3, but to highlight the challenges that are faced, whether somebody's doing Six Sigma or Demaic or Shannon or A3 or Eight Step or whatever, um, the, the, the barriers to success, I think, are pretty common across all of those tools, at least the ones I, at least the, the barriers that I observe uh, organizations having. And, you know, you talk about A3 problem solving, which is a, a framework I really uh, find helpful and I've tried to practice and share it and teach it with others. And, and one of the key steps in A3 problem solving is defining a good problem statement. So in the book, you do talk about the importance of this. So can you, can you talk about that, you know, kind of outside of any of the frameworks when it comes back to behaviors and, and such? 
Yeah, well, so as a core capability, um, you know, first of all, every tool pretty much has some some step where you form the problem statement, right? So that's that's a pretty universal thing as it's as it stands alone. But there's also a lot of problem solving that happens without anybody ever picking up a tool. And what's what's not I don't want to say amusing, but uh, curious is that when when people decide to pick up a tool. They're like, okay, now let's let's craft a good problem statement. What's the criteria for a good problem statement? And then when they're not, when they're just in a meeting talking about a problem, they just they just brush over that like it doesn't matter. And it's like, look, if you just spent 15 seconds, 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever, you don't have to like whip out a problem solving tool. If you just said, let's frame the problem, right? Let's let's understand what problem we're actually solving in conversation mode. Right, you would still have a much more productive conversation, and so you know, seeing it as a gap, whether it's just strategic gap, it's a gap to standard, it's a gap to desired, it's a gap to what the customer wants. You know, seeing it as a gap, seeing it as uh, without bias towards solution or cause, seeing it as essentially others would agree and see it the same way. And see it also as as malleable, right? That that we can change how we define the problem based on our socialization, our engagement, our testing it, right? Our, our testing and stress testing the idea of the problem statement. That we can then change how we've defined the problem statement. Um, you know, for example, I, I I had a problem statement written around my weight, and I've taken a lot of weight off, but. Um, you know, in the end, it was really much more about health than it was about weight. Weight was a good symptom, but it wasn't really the actual problem statement I was after. And so now that I'm like, okay, I've, I've hit a certain weight. Uh, do I just keep losing weight or do I work on other things? What's the real gap? Uh, I, I don't need to write it down. I mean, I can, I probably will, but it's, it's, it's the thought process of understanding the gap and as a gap, being malleable with it and being curious about, you know, is that the right gap and what do we, what do we understand or not understand about it? And, and again, regardless of your problem solving tool, or even if you're having a conversation without a problem solving tool, that question matters. So um, we've got a question for you. I'm going to put you on the spot, ask her a little coaching or feedback. So uh, one, one, pro one problem, or it's more of an improvement. Well, I could frame it as a problem. Um, this won't be the most precise problem statement articulation, but I've been trying to grow the audience for the My Favorite Mistake podcast. Yes. And you, you mentioned earlier about cause and effect. So I wanted to kind of explore this a little bit. Um, I've been in you, you, you'll probably pick right up on what I would expect you might want to coach me on here. Um, I'm trying all sorts of different countermeasures. I've engaged a PR firm to help create some opportunities to be on some radio shows to try to talk about the podcast and the themes of the podcast. I've been a guest on other podcasts. Um, I recently went and tweaked the formal name of the podcast to include, um, you know, phrases like, you know, to, to help try to return better if somebody were to search for business mistakes. My podcast didn't come up in the results, but I've kind of it's now my favorite mistake, colon, 
And there's sort of some words there and, and it's coming up better in some of the searches. So I'm trying all these different things, trying to help solve this problem. I mean, what, what, what are some questions that you would ask or guidance that you might give me about trying all well, these things? Well, and, and so again, without, without being an expert in the domain, which I'm, I'm anything but, um, you know, I, I, I pretty much stop at recording podcasts, right? <laughs> um, rather than knowing what, what makes them successful. But, you know, I, I would start to ask questions around what good looks like and what variables matter for, for growth from a tracking standpoint, right? So, so while you have a lot of episodes of my favorite mistake, you don't have the same duration as other podcasts. What, what matters more? The, the, the longevity of it from the first date to the most recent date or how many episodes there are. I don't know, but how might we compare that against other data points that you have? Yeah, um, so there's a variable I'm maybe not considering there. Is the podcast too long? Is the podcast too short? Is, is it, you know, so if you start to look at your own body of knowledge, you also have to ask yourself, well, is there other bodies of knowledge out there? <laughs> do I compare this to the Lean Blog podcast or do I compare this to, other podcasts that are similar in domain and style. Um, you know, the existing knowledge you have is mostly about your own podcasting. And of course, you've listened to others, you've, you've listened to advice, you've talked with that many other podcasters, but quite frankly, most people you know uh, in podcasting have less experience than you. So you're usually more in the advice giving mm -hmm. domain yeah. than the advice receiving domain. So, how do you get curious about what others have done in in that space? And and then the other the other thing I, I think I'd start to poke at is well you're you're trying a bunch of things um, you're trying them all at once. How do you know that five of them actually helped and four of them hurt? <laughs> and and so you ended up a little bit better off, but you could have been a lot better off if you had only done the five things that helped. Um, now we might have enough base knowledge of how things work to go, well, will this actually hurt? Maybe it won't hurt. Maybe it's, maybe it just won't help when done at the same time as something else. Right. And so is it, is it throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks? Is it simply trying to prime the pump and then see what happens? Or is it trying to develop a recipe of, what is actually going to make a difference? And one of the key questions I'd, I'd ask, which, which isn't the heart of what you're after, is are you trying to build knowledge for the next three new podcasts that you start? Or are you just trying to you know, build knowledge to support this one podcast? Because the knowledge that you gain from learning has a different return on investment depending on you know, how you see that knowledge in relation to the rest of your work. You know, is this is a scalable knowledge that you're building or is this acute, specifically applied knowledge? Mm -hmm. Well, so there's a number of things you touched on there. Like, you know, for one, I, I, I figured as as you did, you would pick up on the I'm probably trying too many things all at once, which then muddies, completely muddies the cause and effect of which of those countermeasures do I put more time and or money into versus not. Um, so I'm kind mm -hmm. of muddying the water there. I'm probably being more, my other reflection is I'm probably being more of 
an experimentalist than a problem solver. Like, I don't think this is a case where I can say, well, there's a root cause for why right. I'm trying to grow. It's not even so much solving a problem. I, I could define anyone who's not listening as a problem. That's not the right way to say it, but I'm no. trying things, but I'm falling into a trap of, I think, trying too many things at once, as you pointed out. Yeah. Without, without, yeah, I think absolutely. At least if you want to understand why you got the result that you wanted. So you could double down or, or not double down. Um, but even, even around the problem statement, like I said, it's, they're all gaps. Um, so maybe the gap isn't every person in the world should listen to this podcast, but what is the target number and by when, right? Uh, um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of times I'll see problem statements written as this should be faster. This should be bigger. This should be better. Well, even if it's faster, it's like, well, how, how much faster? Well, we don't know. We just know it's too slow. All right. Well then, then write, write your problem statement with a, with a blank space that says it currently takes X and it should take Y. And one of the things we have to do and be curious about and explore is what should Y be? Right? What, what is the target? And if we haven't defined it yet, you know, theoretically, most problem solving tools would say, well, define it first before you go on problem solving. But in a lot of cases, people, they just don't know. There's nobody that can just draw a line in the sand and define it. So it takes the exploration of getting into the problem to do the learning that tells you what the answer maybe should be. And it's okay as long as you again. And that's why I say you know write why or write it and write it. Put an under under uh, put a space there, a blank, and say that, just remind yourself that that's I. It's not faster. It's it's X amount faster, and I got to figure out what X is. Um, and that's something I should be curious about as well. Mm -hmm. But I think you know going through that sort of impromptu exercise, and you know, thank you for humoring me with that. I mean, you you kind of apologized a little bit about, well, I'm not an expert in this domain, but I think the discussion kind of proved what you don't have to be a domain because I wasn't asking you for the answers. Hey, Jamie, what are the three things I should do to grow my podcast? That might be something born out of expertise, but coaching around thought process, I think, is is pretty transferable. Yeah, right. And and that's where, you know, I think coaching in problem solving is one of the most underutilized investments there there, there is. Um, because for one, I, you know, we're more focused on the answer than we are the process, right? Once we're once we're in the problem, we are why are we doing problem solving? Well, to come up with an answer, right? So we are naturally going to be more focused on the answer. The coach can help us focus on the process. And when the process has gone awry, they can call it out. They can call attention to it. Um, so I think that's one reason. Second is that as a coach, even if I'm not that good, I am putting all of my energy on the process, which means that my learning as a coach around process accelerates. Um, faster than it would by doing the problem. Because again, when you're, when you're in the problem, you're, you're two parts focused on the solution, one part focused on the process, no matter how hard you try. But if you're the coach, you're, you're 100% focused on the process. You can learn about process better, faster. And then the third thing I'll say 
is, and this, this is reinforced in the book noise, although it's not a, uh, not where I get it from is, you know, there is wisdom in crowds. There is uh, catching blind spots. Uh, there is uh, thinking out loud and, and, and things like that. And, and I believe in a good organization, the minimum number of people involved in any problem is two. Whereas in most organizations, one individual can conceive of a problem, investigate it, come up with a solution and even implement it without interacting with anybody if they so choose. And I believe that makes us not just worse at problem solving, but, uh, but makes us less effective in the solution space as well. Um, one other thing I wanted to follow up on, and well, there's two things that m- might be interconnected or maybe you might wanna address them one at a time. When you were kind of going through coaching me, you kind of brought up the idea of when do you rely on your own experiments versus looking to others for experience, knowledge, information? And then the second question, coming back to something you mentioned earlier, and I know you, you write about, is the role of intuition versus data. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think the, the idea of our, you know, what is what is our own domain and where is my knowledge versus somebody else's is we have to treat at some level, we have to treat every instance, every step and repeat as its own, you know, as its own experiment. It's like, Hey, I, this recipe works great. Well, okay. It it doesn't work as well for me. Well, what's different. (laughs) Is it the kitchen? Is it the oven? Is it the ingredients? Is it the person? Like what? There's always something different. Even just today, I, I was listening to someone talk about a, a solution they had put in place, and they're now going to apply it to this next step in the, in the process that they responsible for. So they're responsible for this process. It worked in the front half. Now they're going to try it again in the back half. But okay, so are you going to try it? Or are you going to test it? Or are you going to just implement it? Right? It's like just because it worked once doesn't guarantee it's going to work in that in the second stage of the same process. So it still should be treated as a test. And and this is one of those places where intuition starts to come into play. It's like, well, how how similar is that, right? How similar are our situations? How similar are our podcasts? How similar is the front half of the process to the back half of the process? What might matter? Um, If you go look at, uh, if you go look at research, right, academic research, and academic research tries, most cases, tries to draw a correlation whether it's through, you know, actual physical modeling, whether it's through data sets, whether it's, you know, they, they basically try to do some type of study or experiment to draw correlations between key variables. But before they start, they decide what variables to include and which ones to exclude. Well, did they model the whole world to draw that conclusion or did they use their experience-based intuition to say, this is where I think I can draw the line. And by, without question, they sometimes draw it way too narrow and, and intuition does not always serve as well. <laughs> but A, we utilize it whether we think we are or we not, right? Which I have 10, I have 15 problems I could go solve. Which one do I want to go solve? Well, do I, do I, do I really have a rigorous analytical process or did I, did I have a gut feeling? Right. Um, 
do I need to test everything I write down or do I just need to test these three things? There, there's some intuition in, in all of that. And I think problem solving is much better when we acknowledge it, when we embrace it. And essentially when we uh, create the room in our processes to allow the intuition to seep in, <laughs> to breathe, <clears throat> to be tapped. Um, and so whether that's a facilitated exercise that you know allows people to tap into their creativity and their thought process or sleeping on it, right? Which is a common technique. Or what I love to do now is, you know, when I have not so much my own problems, but the people I coach, when they're wrestling with difficult problems and I'm coaching them over a period of time with the challenges they're facing, like I've got a call coming up on Tuesday, I'm going for a hike on Sunday. Let me just let that question linger in my head and be more curious about it and see what comes out. And I'm not trying to solve it while I'm on my hike. Otherwise I bring a notebook with me. I'm just allowing my intuition to perhaps interact with that question or that problem for a period of time. And so, you know, A, you know, intuition's always there. We just pretend we're analytical um, all the time. And so we're much better off when we embrace and allow for the intuition to be used effectively along the way. The way you talk about intuition makes me think of a word, a concept that's used a lot in the training within industry approach, this word, this, uh, word knack. Sometimes you have a knack for it. Um, for like, for example, like kind of just building on a different recipe or a, a different uh, approach, example, a recipe. So let's say, Jamie, you said, Hey, Mark, I know you make pizzas in the backyard. Send me your dough recipe. Well, I could send you the recipe, which is written out of mathematical measurements of flour, water, yeast, and salt. And then you may report back to me and you're like, man, that dough was really dry. It didn't even really form into a ball. And I'd be like, oh, well, I forgot to pass along the knack of like, there's the formula, but some days you have to add more water based on humidity and other factors. And you say, well, how do I know how wet the dough is? I'm like, well, you just know. Yeah. You just, you just know after. And, and, and so the thing is our brains are incredibly capable, right? And there's a lot of research behind, you know, what percentage of our brain power we're actually tapping into. And it's, it's, it's small, whatever the number is, doesn't really matter. And, and here's, here's a good example of how our, our neural system is far more effective than our deliberate thought process. Stand on one leg and try to think your way through, you know, lean to the left, lean to the right, rotate your hip, rotate your ankle, try to analytically have balance. You're going to fall over. Now, just allow your body to make all those neural connections and all those adjustments. And it's, hey, amazing. Balance works. And, and, and so that's the thing is that our brain is capable of learning that we don't have the numbers, the words, the frameworks, the lines, the pictures to articulate. And, and so the smarter we get, the better we are at converting what we do internalize to a recipe, to a process, mm. to a procedure. I always like to say that art is science that we haven't yet 
fully articulated. Right? <laughs> it's uh, it, it's not that there isn't science behind good dough. There, there is science behind right. it. But how do you find it? Well, we just we just don't have to articulate it yet. Right? We just we just don't have yeah. the words or the math yeah. or the uh, you know the way to put it into a recipe yet. Yeah. And so we still rely on the knack, on the art, on mm -hmm. the intuition to to figure that out. And there's, so it's just Science we haven't figured out yet. I, I like the way you put that because again, when it comes back to the dough, um, you know, I, I know how wet and sticky the dough should feel, like almost too sticky to handle, but not too sticky, right? But that some of this we don't know yet how to quantify. Where I could give you a formula, I'm like, well, you should use you know seventy percent water by weight to the flour, but like th there could be a formula that involves the temperature, humidity the age of the flower. There are these different variables that we just, like you said, we don't know how to make formulaic. Right. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, much like you with pizza, I, I'm, I'm playing with, uh, the art of making espresso mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and there's, you know, you watch videos and they, they contradict each other left and right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, don't do this. Oh, this doesn't matter. Oh, this is the most important step. And, and you, you listen to these and, and it, it's really hard to conclude what the science is. Um, there, there are things that can, that, that are scientific studies, but even that is, you know, their metric is what's the solubility of the coffee in the, in the water. I, okay, well, that's a measure. <laughs> is, is that the measure? And then, then there's people that, oh, I'm just really good at tasting coffee. Okay, <laughs> um, I, I, maybe I'm not as good. And so I am trying to develop my own science, but more importantly, in the pathway of developing my own science, I'm, I, I'm developing my own intuition. And I don't think I'm ever gonna get to science because nobody seems to have in this domain, but I can at least, in pursuing it as a science, get my intuition sharper mm -hmm. when it comes to this, because the age of the beans and the, the ambient temperature and, you know, all, all of these things do, in fact, matter. So in a way, I think everything we're talking about there with dough and espresso on some other level, maybe a conversation about lean and problem solving and formulas and experience and conflicting advice from different sources. But, right. Uh, um, I think Jamie is a good source and uh, a lot of good stuff in the book here. People solve problems, the power of every person, every day, every problem. Um, last thing before uh, we have to wrap up, there's a section that's um, titled call a Band-Aid a Band-Aid. Now, I just have to tell you real quick, when I worked for Johnson & Johnson, at some <laughs> point there was, I, I do believe there was actually a memo that told those of us in the consulting group to not use the term band-aiding a process because that was a registered trademark of Johnson & Johnson and band-aiding the process has a negative connotation. It does, and, right. and it's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so it, it, it's not a permanent fix, mm. it's okay, but let's not pretend we, we're, we've, don't, let's not pretend we've solved the problem, um, right? And, uh, and so, yeah, certainly if you're part of J&J, &J, you probably shouldn't use it in that way. But uh, uh, since I'm not, it, it, it's okay. It's a common it is. term, it is. right? Yeah. It's yeah. out there. But but again, let's just not pretend that was problem solving. That was 
that was just covering up the symptoms so it doesn't get worse. So let's say if you're constantly cutting yourself when shaving, and sometimes the Band-Aid might be necessary, but if you're constantly cutting yourself all the time, you need to step back and say, hey, how can I, what do I need to change about my my tools or my process or what have you to avoid needing to use all those adhesive bandages. We could adhesive bandage that process. Yes. It doesn't, doesn't make for a good chapter title, but, uh, but yes, it it is, uh, um, it's a necessary thing and we have way too many things wrong (laughs) to not use some band-aids. That's okay. This band-aids are very helpful. They make, they prevent small problems from becoming big problems. That's great tremendously valuable, but we didn't solve the problem and we just shouldn't pretend that we did. Yeah. So well said, um, I do have to wrap up here, but again, our guest has been Jamie Flinchbaugh. The book is people solve problems, the power of every person, every day, every problem. Please do get that. Now it's available paperback, Kindle audiobook, and you can learn more also at jflinch.com. Jamie Flinchbaugh of, we call him Jay Flinch for short. That's right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to Jamie Flinchbaugh for being our guest today. Again, for show notes, links, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 432. You can find Jamie's new book on Amazon. And again, his website is jflinch.com. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.